This is the fourth lesson on biblical grace, and this one we appropriately entitle Grace to Sin, question mark, question mark, question mark, because we live in an hour that Jude prophesied and said that, uh, that, that certain people will creep in unawares, and they'll change the grace of God into lasciviousness. So it's a prophesied event, and it, it's unfolding in our very day where you take the, what it means, the grace of God into lasciviousness, you basically use grace as the excuse to sin. One of the Greek definitions for lasciviousness is the leftovers of rebellion, which is very profound. It's what's still left in you after you get saved. Because we know when we get born again, God takes some stuff out of us, he chooses to, and then some stuff is just left in us. And we get to spend the rest of our life working that out or getting the victory or fighting it or, as Paul said, keeping your flesh under. But uh, Jude said there would, there would folks would come, preachers, we know from the context, who would change the grace of God into lasciviousness and basically say grace comes that you may sin, which Paul said in Romans, God forbid. And so that's why we want to cover this. We want to look at exactly what grace is about in this, in this topic of sin. We've also said in the previous lessons that as with any Bible subject, you can't just look at one or two passages of scripture on any Bible topic. You have to look at all of them if you want to have a, a better understanding of that Bible doctrine. If you only build a doctrine on one or two verses, you don't have a very re- uh, rounded, very integrated, very worked out doctrine. Uh, you, you have to be able to look at all of them, and even as a scientist would, adjust your hypotheses for your testing and your evidence. You don't want to be like the, the professor I had in college when I was presenting to him some uh, research that contradicted old earth geology. I said, what do you think about that? Because he was a mineralogy and a petrologist. He studied rocks. I said, this, this little line of detail here contradicts 4.6 billion years. How do you rectify that with old age? He said, well, in science, if your evidence doesn't support your hypotheses, you get better evidence. You know, and he said it very serious. And I thought, yep, there's no bias in science, <laughs> only just a little. All right, let's get into our lesson. If you continue to grow and develop as a Christian, you will no doubt discover that the grace of God will help you through your sins and shortcomings. Now remember, uh, one of our definitions for grace is heaven's help. Heaven's help for what? Heaven's help to do what God wants, right? And we know that sin, one of the definitions of sin is missing the mark. You know, Sarah is a championship marksman. I went to college on it. She understands needing help to hit the mark. And if you're consistently missing the target altogether, then you could say, Lord, grace me to hit the mark. So I stop missing it. And, and you improve your accuracy or you improve your performance. That's one of the things grace wants to come and do. And when we realize that, it makes all the more baffling that Christians could somehow teach that grace comes so we can sin. Or even as the common heresy that's running rampant is that you don't need to repent anymore because you were already forgiven 2,000 years ago on the cross. Yes, you were. You were also healed 2,000 years ago at the cross. But you know what? You still have to contend for that. And the chastisement that was necessary for our peace was 2,000 years ago. You have to struggle to keep some peace in your life? Absolutely. So why would forgiveness of sins be any different than healing, than peace, than joy? These things aren't just gimmies. You have to apply faith to receive anything from God. 
All right. You must, however, beware that you do not grow to exploit the grace of God as many are currently doing. These individuals are changing the grace of God into lasciviousness, the leftovers of rebellion. And you'll, you'll see that the, the, what, we, what is called the hyper-grace message is very popular because folk Christians are fighting the leftovers of rebellion that didn't get wiped away at the new birth. And this, this hyper-grace, this you don't have to for, repent, that you're already forgiven, that's a very enticing message because it means you, you can stop fighting. It means you don't have to keep your body under. It means it's okay. God understands, they say. You can see why it's so popular and all the more hurtful because that message is teaching Christians to let their flesh do as it will. And the dangerous thing is the leftovers of rebellion will grow and become new meals. Instead of having leftover chicken and leftover greens, you mix it together, you get this new thing called goulash and uh, other things get added to it. It's a whole new ball of abomination and damnation altogether. Let us be very clear. Grace comes to get you out of sin. Grace is never given to help you enjoy the sin. Amen. Romans 5.20 says this in 6, 1 and 2. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Uh, let me say this. I remember years ago, um, Reverend Jean-Paul was sharing with us that the, the word for uh, grace in the Greek was mercy court, which meant like mercy rope, uh, the rope of mercy. Grace, it's a rope of mercy to get you out of your problem. And I, that sparked something in me. We were teaching this for a telecast. And uh, as we were teaching it, I started, the Lord started reminding me of a situation how in the world can you, how do you explain grace abounding when you're sinful? That makes no sense to our mind. The dirtier you are, the more grace is available to you, right? That's what this verse is saying. That doesn't make any sense because it would seem to say then, sin all the more so you can get more grace. So as I was teaching this, I was reminded of years ago, Will Hutchison and I, we were caving in the Smoky Mountains and I ended up getting very, foolishly courageous and I crawled down a, a waterfall which we were not geared for and uh, the waterfall was maybe 25 maybe 30 feet from top to very bottom the part I crawled down was maybe 15 feet to where I could find a ledge because I wanted to explore the waterfall we weren't geared for this we barely had headlights as I recall and so I get done exploring it and I push it and he stays at the top of the waterfall and the thing pulled around and a water collection pulled and cut off back to the left and dropped another 30 or 40 feet and there was no crawling down that thing. So it's time to come back out and so I look up and I realize this is gonna be a little trickier because the waterfall is now splashing in my line of sight. So I look up and all I can see is water. I can't even really see Will. It's just a wall of white coming at me. And on top of that, you know, the water's about 58 degrees Caves about 58, 60 degrees. Was it winter? No, it was summertime. It was summer. It doesn't matter in a cave because I've been to that cave a couple times. One time was in the winter. So I start to crawl out of it or climb out of it. And rock climbing is not that big of a deal. But as I'm, as I'm climbing out, the only way to climb out is up through the waterfall. 
which the water starts hitting you in the chest, and so then your body starts running through the reverse sequence of hypothermia. And the, your, your, the heat starts drawing out because I'm nailing my core, my center part of my chest with this cold water, and then your muscles start seizing up. So I kept trying several times to climb this, and I just couldn't. And then all of a sudden, a little bit of panic sets in, and I think, well, honestly, we're trespassing because this is on national park territory. and We don't have permission to be in this cave and you have to get permission in the Smokies if you're going to be in the caves. So I said, all right, I can see us being rescued. I can see us being fined. I can see us. Federal fines aren't cheap because they like to waste money. So their fines are always bigger. So it gives them more money to waste. They got a rescue squad that's going to have to come down here. This ain't an easy cave to get down into. My mind's running through all of this. And I'm thinking, Lord, I am in a big heap of stupid trouble. And then I remember Will is 6'4". And Will... Was it, I had your belt on. Uh, we had been at his house that morning, and I said, I need a belt. My pants are falling off. So he gave me this long belt, a webbing belt with little two little loops of brass. And I said, I got an idea. God help us if it don't work. Take this webbing belt. You know, it was probably four feet or something. So loop it through itself. Loop it through your wrist. Hang off that cliff as far as you can, probably at your torso, because the top of the waterfall was probably only, what, two feet or something. It was a low... So I figured he could hang off the waterfall at his hips and hook his heels and then with his long arms and then another four feet of rope, he maybe could get that thing low enough that I could crawl up to and grab it and wrap my wrist around it because we got to cover 15, 18 feet here. And so he did and I did and I was able to do it and I was able to get out. The Lord reminded me of all that and the Lord said, you know, when you're at the bottom of a 40-foot pit, you need more than 40 feet of rope. When you're at the bottom of a 100-foot pit, you need more than 100 feet of rope. And when you're at the bottom of sin, you need grace that goes beyond your stupid. And I, I saw beautifully, I like, God, that's good. I, oh, Lord, thank you so much. Where your sin is abounding, there's more than enough grace to wrap around you, tie yourself off, and the Lord Jesus pull you up out of that if you want it. You know, do I go into a deep pit so I can have a more need of a thousand feet of rope? God forbid. Because I said to myself, I'll never do that again. I think we crawled to the top. And I remember thinking that was probably dumb decision number five or six. Top 10 stupidest things I've ever done. That's top five, easy. But where grace abounds, excuse me, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Not so you can keep digging a deeper hole. Not so you can say, well, you know what? 100 feet of rope showed up. Let's go find a 200-foot pit, push this thing. No, no, that's foolish. What, you, what it ought to say is, Lord, I don't, I don't want to get in pits this deep anymore. That was a little hairy, a little scary. Romans 6, 15 and 16. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey... His servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. This hyper-gracing that's going around is basically teaching Christians to become the servants of sin. That's not good. It's never going to be good. You can't church that thing up, put makeup on it, and sell it as good. It's, it's, it's abominable. It's damnable. And yet it's popular because it teaches folks to give up the fight of faith. Christians don't like the fight of faith because it's a fight. We want it to be relaxation time. You don't get relaxation time until you've had to fight for a little bit. The Bible is very clear on the subject of sin and grace. We are to flee sin and live. 
if we yield our bodies to sin, even in the name of grace, the Bible still promises death. Sin is sin and must always be viewed as sin. If you can always view sin as cancer, if you can always view even your little sins as radioactive radioactive metal or something that could give you cancer, if you could always view any kind of sin as some kind of poisonous insect or spider that could maybe kill you, uh, now that I know a little bit about brown recluses, I have to admit I'm a little paranoid about them. Little bitty spider can rot a whole lot of meat. And they look so much like wolf spiders that in my garage, I think, I got to call the bug guy. That guy, that little spider gives me the heebie-jeebies, not because it's a spider, but because I know we have brown recluse spiders in our region. And all you have to do, though I don't recommend it, is just Google search brown recluse spider bite and get ready to puke. If you can view even your most perverse little thought that you entertain as that spider crawling on you, you will swat that thing, you'll flick it off, you'll say, no, in Jesus' name, get off of me. (laughs) Instead of saying, no, some people have ant farms. I have brown recluse spider farms in my head. No, 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 no. On my iPod, on my iPhone. No, (laughs) if we can let sin become exceedingly sinful, it will go a long way to keeping us clean and safe and holy. The problem is we just don't fear sin. And I don't mean fear, scared of the dark fear. I mean healthy respect. I have a healthy respect for venomous insects. If we yield our bodies to sin, even in the name of grace, the Bible still promises death. It's a Bible promise. Sin is sin and must always be be viewed as sin. Just because we have grace does not mean we have been authorized to change the definition of sin. Back to that waterfall pit. That waterfall pit is always going to be a waterfall pit. It's always going to be about 35 feet deep at the deepest and maybe 18 feet at the highest ledge that you can maybe save yourself out of. And no amount of rope is going to change the depth of that pit. Though the grace of God could salvage you out of a million mile pit. What we're trying to do because we have a rope supply is say, sin's not so deep. It's not that bad. You want to be very careful. Amen. It is not okay to sin now that you have received grace. You can have grace, but sin will always, always, always be sin. So what does grace teach? Well, if God intended for his grace to be exploited as a free ticket to sin, we should be able to find Bible verses that reveal that to us. We don't find that though. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, for the grace of God, praise God for grace, the same grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, what does grace teach us? That denying ungodliness and denying worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's the very first thing grace teaches us after the new birth. It teaches us that we are to deny certain things. Now, what's awesome is that because Paul's writing here, and Paul's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Paul's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Paul and his context and his understanding is all Levitical law. It's all Mosaic law. So how do we base what is godly, holy, and sober? But by the Old Testament. That's the connotation. That's the influence. Grace teaches us that we're to be godly. How is godly defined? Old Testament. Teaches us to deny worldly lusts. What, how do we know what worldly lusts are? Old Testament teaches us. How about to live soberly, righteously, and godly? What does that look like? Well, 
from the context of the Old Testament, which is what hypergrace people hate. They hate to think about the law because, you know, the law killeth. Well, Paul also said the law is good. The law is spiritual. The law is good if you know how to use it lawfully. The law becomes unlawful when you think you can become the righteousness of God through the obedience of it. You cannot become the righteousness of God through obeying the law. That's an unlawful use of the law. But what the law can teach you how to be is holy. Only Jesus Christ can make you righteous, but obeying the law can make you holy. Amen. Even Paul said, I was flawless concerning the law, but he wasn't righteous. He had to be born again. Amen. According to these verses, the grace of God teaches us five things. Refuse ungodliness, refuse worldly lust, live soberly, that means self-controlled in handling your appetites. This would help weight issues. This would help drinking issues. The grace of God will get you skinny. The grace of God will get you off of whatever you're addicted to. The grace of God will help curb your eye appetites because this is what grace teaches. That's what the word in the Greeks to live soberly means, self-control. Uh, the grace of God will help you live righteously and to live godly. There is no provision in grace to keep on living dirty. And of course, the, the carnal Christian always says, well, where's the balance? I don't know. How many brown recluse spiders do you want in your bed when you go to bed at night? Will one, will one be enough? Or will you not strip those sheets back? If, if you're really spooky, you might even just wash all of them and change them. I, mean, I don't know. How many brown recluse spiders do you want in your sleeping bag when you go camping? Where's the, come on, where's the balance? How many, do you, how many brown recluse spiders do you want crawling around in your car while you're driving through traffic? Are you going to keep driving through traffic or are you going to pull over as soon as you can and do the heebie-jeebie dance <laughs> and, and not stop till you can find that thing and squish it? You might not even look for it. You might just go get an insect bomb, shut your car door, and just call somebody. I'm going to be late. Yeah, where's the balance? How many scorpions do you want in your house with your kids crawling around on the floor? How many bumblebees, if you're allergic to bumblebees, is acceptable in your tent when you're camping? Where's the balance? It depends on how much death you want. Did you know that even just 1% of death is still death? <laughs> yeah, where's the balance? Grace cleans you up and keeps you clean. Grace is for helping you out of sin, not permitting you to keep sinning. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Powerful passage. It's called the throne of grace, not the throne of sin. And you come in time of need. What are your needs? Well, there anything the fallen state provides. Sickness is a time of need. Sin and temptation is a time of need. Hurt is a time of need. Financial heartache is a time of need. You come and grace helps you. But this verse even applies when you just got done sinning and you just got done rebelling for the 15th time. You go to the throne of grace, you find mercy and grace to help in time of need. The context of this passage is being free from sin, talking about Jesus who was tempted in all points like as we yet without sin. Our high priest Jesus Christ understands our weaknesses and our temptations because he was tempted. 
Therefore, he's a merciful high priest, and his throne of grace is where we go to get help when we are tempted. We don't go to the throne of grace to get permission to sin. Say, hey, Lord, uh, there's this new magazine out. It's got a bunch of naked people in it. What do you think? Should I get it? But some people have felt like they had permission from God. I don't have a check about looking at pornography. What is wrong with you? What demon have you been fellowshipping with? You go to the throne of grace because you say, Lord, there's this magazine and I really want to look at it. Or Lord, uh, there's this thing and I really want to drink it. Or whatever your deal is. And the Lord helps you through it. We don't go to the throne of grace to get permission to sin. Can you imagine someone going to the throne of grace and asking for permission to live dirty and unclean? That's what's being taught. Actually, we're taught don't even go to the throne of grace. We're taught just go. God understands you're already washed. It's almost like we're being, we're being taught not to even check in with God. Uh, man, if you're not checking with God, you don't even have a prayer life. And when you do check in with God, eventually he's going to say, by the way, I want you to get rid of that. Amen. 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 Old Testament examples of grace, because we find grace in the Old Testament as legalistic as it was. We find, uh, as some say, we find grace throughout the entire Old Testament because God is a God of grace. And if he's a God of grace, you're going to find grace coming out of him everywhere you look for him. Old Testament saints also obtain grace from God. Let us see if the grace of God permitted them to sin. Noah, Genesis 6, 5, and 8. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So we got a sin issue. And that every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. Notice all this stuff starts in the heart. It starts with the vain imaginations. It starts with the daydreams. It, it starts with allowing thoughts to take root in your head. And God, he doesn't even talk about the actions. He's nailing the heart. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both man and beast and creeping things and fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice sin is so bad, he's gonna kill everything. He's gonna drown everything. He's gonna wipe it out. And yet somebody still found grace. I think we can see very quickly, Noah didn't obtain grace to take a little bit of the old world and bring it on the boat. He wasn't going to have this floating boat and it was, it was going to be an orgy. This was not the love boat he was making. I think we can see the grace did not come for Noah to live like the world that was about to be wiped out. I think we can see that pretty clearly. God planned to destroy all of mankind because of sin, but Noah found grace. And Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. That means to me, every day that he spent building that boat, he was declaring the righteousness of God. God's coming. He's going to wipe you out. Repent. God's coming. He's going to wipe you out. Maybe he had a giant banner on the side of the boat that said, repent, the end is near. They probably made fun of him like they make fun of us. Yeah. In Noah's day, grace and clean living seemed to go hand in hand. Grace equipped Noah and his family to escape the destruction of sin. Again, the whole world earned a paycheck called death. Romans was preaching all the way back in Genesis 6. The wages of sin is death. But because of the grace of God on Noah's life, his faith condemned the world, Hebrews 6 tells us, and he saved his family. Clean living will save your family. Dirty living will destroy your family. You need to be mindful if you're a husband, if you're, or even if it's a single parent, you're the head of the home, what you permit 
bathes your kids and your marriage a hundredfold. You may think you can handle it, but you don't know what's coming in the back door. Amen. Amen. It's very selfish to be sinful as a head of household. Look at Moses. Exodus 33, 16 and 34, 9. For wherein shall it be known, Moses speaking to the Lord, that I and your people have found grace in your sight? Is it not that, that you go with us? So shall we be separated. Notice grace separates here. I and the people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Nothing in these verses seems to tie grace to the excusal of sin. He said, if we have grace, then we'll be separate from all the nations on the earth. And he said, if, in the verse, uh, chapter 34, he said, if we have found grace, then please pardon our iniquity. Don't permit it. Don't wink at it. Don't excuse it. Pardon it. As in, we deserve to be executed, but grant us a pardon. Moses stated that God's grace in his life and in Israel's life would cause them to be a separated people, a people different from the world. If, if we may sin that grace may abound, how are we any different than the heathen we're supposed to be winning? If we don't have to repent of our sin, we're just like the heathen that are miserable scratching at the ark door wanting in. If we don't have to repent. What, there should be something making us different as Christians. We ought to be living different, thinking different, speaking different. One of the things Christians do that the heathen don't is we say we're sorry. We repent. We acknowledge our sin to a God who taught us better. Even the heathen might feel sorry but they don't say, oh God, I have sinned against you. They just know they're miserable. We have something different because we have this personal relationship with the holy God of Israel. And we say, Lord, I'm miserable and I know why. I sinned against you. And I partook of the forbidden thing. Have mercy on me. Pardon my sin and wash me. I, I just, it's unfathomable to think the body of Christ is so stupid to fall for some of this hyper grace heresy. It's just, it's just that the American church, actually not the American church, one of the great hyper-grace gurus of our day was confronted by one of his fathers, and he said, come on, you and I both know Christians are so stupid, they don't read their Bible anyway. I could teach anything and tell them it's in the Bible, and they'd believe it. That man says, I'm just using the body of Christ to make money. And his testimony, his opinion of the church is, they're so stupid, they don't even know their Bible which I would have to halfway sort of agree. We fall for stuff because we don't know our Bible. We don't study our Bible. We don't work out doctrine. We're not students of the word. We have every other thing we think is more important than to know the Bible for ourselves. Oh, it's a sad day we live in. In Noah's day, grace and clean living seem to go hand in hand. Moses stated that God's grace in his life and in Israel's life would cause him to be a separated people, a people different from the world. In chapter 34, verse 9, Moses acknowledges God's grace in his life, but he also confesses this people's sins. Moses had grace, and grace in Moses' life caused him to acknowledge and confess sin and to live differently from the surrounding heathen. Isn't that how it should be today? We should acknowledge our sin, we should confess it, and then live a totally different life. Our marriages should be better than the heathen. Our money should look better than the heathen. Our appetites should look better than the heathen. 
<laughs> there should be a marked difference because we have something they don't, which is the grace of God. We should be living at such a higher caliber, not in pride, but as in a, a light, a city set on a hill that people say, knock, 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 can I come in? Yeah, scratching at the door, the water's getting deeper, can I come in? But as it is, so many Christians just have an ark built but play in the mud outside. Their marriages are a mess, their kids are a mess, their money's a mess, their mind's a mess, their appetites are a mess. Where's the distinction that makes us the people of God? It's not just meant to be when we get to heaven. We're called to live so far superior to the darkness that is around us. But that requires the fight of faith. Now, I've said it a thousand times. Let me pastor for a second. Our life should be getting better every month. Our marriage should be improving every day. Our kids should have a vision that we give them to get out of where they're at to grow. Everything in our life should be blossoming for God if we're walking with him and taking advantage of the grace of God that he ministers to us for our betterment. I think if we're born again, we might flick like a little bick and that'll even draw a moth or two. And you can go into a deep, dark cave and even a lighter will be a nice shining light. I've heard stories of people coming out of caves because their flashlights went out. One story I read in the NSS magazine was they literally had cheese puffs and those things burn and they would light their, their smokers, obviously, which is why they had a lighter. Uh, they'd, they'd light the cheese puff and it'll burn for, you know, 45, 50 seconds. And they walked, they got their way out of a cave by burning cheese puff after cheese puff. Even that does some good, but I'd much rather, you know, be uh, like the sun, at least like the moon. But if our life is not getting better, if our marriage is not getting better, if our appetites aren't getting better, if our money isn't getting better, we're kidding ourselves. Amen. God gave us this grace to help us. Now, let's take a second here. We got another page and a half to finish. If I'm lifting something and I need help and God comes along and helps me, how much help do you think I'm going to get? Just a little bit of help or is that thing going to be certainly lifted? Ah, I think with God's help, I could lift a Mack truck. I think with God's help, I could be Atlas with the world on my shoulders. We don't have the right to say, I'm trying, Lord. That doesn't work at all. That's a lie. We do the word of God. My, we're teaching my little girl, and, it, and it's almost becoming a thing she gets swatted for when she says, I can't. I hate hearing that in my household. My, my, oh, my mama, my wife, mama. And now I know why old people call each other mom and dad. Hey, mama, dad, just, uh, my wife hates to hear Lydia say, I can't. So she, she's three and a half. She now says, help, please. We've actually got Absie. Absie just turned one. She now signs help. Uh, this is help in sign language. She just claps her hands because she can't do the thumb thing. She now, when she wants something, she signs for help because she knows if she asks for help, we do it all. When Lydia says, help, please, we do it all. You and I have lied to God. We've lied to ourselves and we've lied to the body of Christ in saying, I can't. And we've lied if we've said, well, I asked God for help. If you ask God for help, he does it. And you no longer can say, I can't. You say it's done. And so as your pastor, now I'm about to conclude this pastoral moment brought to you by Starbucks. 
Your life's not changing because you won't get God to help. You're staying the same because you are resisting the grace of God and you're frustrating it. When you ask God for help, he comes and does it. I know firsthand as a dad. I come in, I'm glad, I'm proud to sweep in and fix it, put the lid on it, take the lid off, twist it on, twist it off, pick it up, put it down, raise it up high, whatever it needs to be done, simply because my little girls, either in sign language or with baby English says help, I come in and I say, yes, daddy is here. Because it's nothing for me to help them where they're at in life. And you and I both know God is nothing for him to help us where we're at in life. That's grace. And no part of that spells sin. Amen, all right. Next page, Gideon. This pastoral moment is now over. We'll go back to teaching. Judges 6, 16, and 17, the Lord said unto Gideon, surely I will be with you. Well, if God's with you, I think you're gonna make a change in life. And you will smite the Midianites as one man, a whole nation. That's like the Lord saying, you'll, you'll wipe ISIS out. It's just equivalent in their heart and mind under that kind of terror. It's the same demon. It's never left the Middle East. They still cut people's heads off and oppress people. Same spirit. It's like the Lord telling you, I'm sending you to the Middle East and you will smite ISIS as one man. Now you know why Gideon's like, well, well, really? And he said unto him, if I, Gideon now speaking, if I have found grace in your sight, then show me a sign that you're really talking with me. The Lord appeared unto Gideon while he was threshing wheat in an abandoned wine press. Threshing wheat separates the wheat from the chaff. This is symbolic of sin. Gideon threshing wheat represents his desire to judge himself before God and remove the sin from his life. That's what the New Testament allegory tells us. This desire to be clean qualified Gideon for the grace of God and it qualified him to be used mightily of God as a judge over Israel. Gideon's first job as a judge with grace was to destroy the idols in his family and get the sin out of his home. See, once again, here's our third witness. Grace gets rid of sin. Grace makes a change. Grace in all these instances brought promotion. Grace brings promotion. Grace makes your life easier. Ezra and the Babylonian remnant, usually when I get on something like this, I beat it like a dead horse. And so we just keep going and going and going because we want to make sure you're not confused on any of these points that grace nowhere looks like sin nor endorses it. Ezra, the Babylonian remnant, Ezra 9, 7, and 8. Since the days of our father, Ezra speaking, praying, we have been in this great trespass unto this day. He's acknowledging sin. And for our iniquities have we, acknowledging sin, we have, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands. We've been delivered to the sword, to captivity, to a spoil, and to confusion of face. Notice that what sin does is not good. It's slavery in a miserable life. Amen. Every one of our lives could take a step up if we'd be willing to use the grace of God to put aside the sin. Uh, and I may start teaching uh, in our church that I can't is just as sinful as raw fornication. Amen. I can't. That mocks Philippians 4. I can do, I can do all things through Christ. You can get a job. You can get the sin under control. You can love better. You can forgive. You can have a tender heart. And none of this, I can't. Honestly, the I can't is just as slanderous as the 10 lying heathen spies that slandered God in the promised land. We can't. And the Lord says, fine, die in the bush. And they did. And their families with them. And now for a little space, grace has been shown 
from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. Notice grace produces an escape. To give us a nail in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Grace brings a reviving. Ezra reminded the people that their enslavement was due to sin. But God in his mercy showed grace toward Israel so they could escape their slavery and find a place in his holy place. Grace also came to revive them. Sin did not bring life, neither does I can't. When's the last time you said, I can't quit? I can't sin. I can't abandon God. I can't afford to skip a service. I can't afford to rob the tithe. When's the last time you used those three damnable words for the kingdom? I can't not witness. I can't skip this mission trip. I can't not pray. Now we're so easy to abandon God with this lame excuse. I can't. Grace came to revive them. Sin did not bring life. Sin brought bondage, but grace had come to deliver them from slavery and bring life. Look at the psalmist, Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Notice grace and walking uprightly go hand in hand. The whole context of this psalm, Psalm 84, is living around the house of God and walking uprightly. Grace and right living go hand in hand. Solomon, this is our last example here. Proverbs 3, 21 through 23. Solomon speaking. My son, let not my words depart from your eyes. Keep them, excuse me, keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they, the words of God, be life unto your soul and grace to your neck. Then shalt thou walk in the way safely and your foot shall not stumble. That is to say sin. When you keep the word of God in you, it is the word of grace, and you bind it about your neck like a necklace, something you want to show off, like Mr. T. Everybody remember Mr. T from uh, the A-Team, A Pity the Fool, B.A. Baracus. And uh, I've never seen the man without 15 pounds of gold around his neck. I don't know, you know, that's the kind of thing. He might have some kind of weird scar he was a little insecure about, so he started throwing the gold on, and it became his, uh, his calling sign. Wear it around your neck, the word of God, the grace of God. It's better than a millstone to be tied around your neck. The neck also represents your soul, biblically. And, and uh, you know, when you talk about a stiff-necked and hardness of heart, it's all allegory. Because when, when you're cast down, you're stooped over at your neck. You know, when you're arrogant, you'll turn your neck and you'll turn away from something. Or if you're determined, you'll set your face like flint. Your neck controls all of that. So the neck is representative of your heart and soul, and the Lord wants you to bind grace upon your heart and soul so that you're determined to do everything God commands you, and you never say, I can't. Ask the Lord to show you how much, you may not ever say it with your mouth because we know how to be religious around here. Ask the Lord to show you how much your heart says, I can't. Because if the Lord asks you to do something, I can't is not acceptable. He won't even acknowledge it. You'll just watch the grace of God dry up out of your life like the tide going out. So you just say, all right, Lord, this stinks, but I'm going to do it. Lord, I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. Your, your first thing out, out of your mouth ought to say, yes, Lord, just help, which is almost redundant because if he said do it, his help's going to be there anyway. If we believe the grace of God, we will obey and do. But it's evident that some folks don't believe the grace of God or maybe they just don't know it. And that's why they never change. 
you know, it's one thing to know every verse on grace. It's another thing to actually live it out. I'd rather know one verse about grace and it benefit my life than to know every verse about grace. Amen in the service, which I appreciate, by the way, but never use it to do anything. We need to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus. Solomon's wisdom taught that keeping the word of God, keeping wisdom and keeping discretion would cause you to be full of life and grace. The word is a restraint to your flesh. Is it ever? Grace about your neck will keep you from stumbling and sinning. May we keep ourselves from sin and lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our soul. Amen. Father, we, I thank you for these lessons on grace and uh, grace to never sin, but grace to get out of sin. May the grace of God come upon our life to never say, I can't, but to always say, I can. I can obey. I can fulfill the call of God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, I thank you for this awesome Sunday school. Bless all those that listen to these lessons in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.